Because of the ongoing COVID-19 epidemic, we continue to pre-record our episodes over Zoom. Good evening and welcome to Civil Politics here on Valley Free Radio, WXOJLP 103.3 FM out of Northampton, Massachusetts. I'm Michael Dow, hosting the show tonight with my good friends Jonra and Sue. Hello. And our special guest, Tom Hartman, uh, who many of you may know. Uh, Mr. Hartman hosts a live progressive talk radio show daily from noon to three Eastern on hundreds of radio stations, both commercial and nonprofit, uh, all across the United States, including local station WHMP AM 1400 and 105, 101.5 FM. Um, Mr. Hartman's written over 30 books, some of which have been New York Times bestsellers. He's worked in fields as varied as homeopathy, advertising, travel, international relief, and an herbal tea company. He and his wife, Louise, have been married for half a century now, starting seven businesses and raising three now adult children. And they currently live in Portland, Oregon, with what is described as a small menagerie. (laughs) And we're especially glad to have Mr. Hartman here with us because uh, next Tuesday, I believe, the 18th of January, of January, July, in our year of our Lord 2023, uh, your latest book, The Hidden History of American Democracy, Rediscovering Humanity's Ancient Way of Living, will be coming out uh, for people to get. And uh, I've read it, and honestly, it's a a damn good book. Uh, I think our listeners should read it. So, you know. Thank you. Yeah. So... Uh, actually, uh, so s- since we only have you for a limited time, uh, I'd like to, to dive in with, uh, uh, we've got a, well, actually, Sue, uh, you, why don't we start with, uh, let's start with, uh, uh, sort of the historical qu- questions, the, the, the background stuff. Uh, Sue, uh, you were particularly interested in asking about sort of the secular, the secular origins of American democracy and, and in relation to Supreme Court. Oh, well, Supreme yeah. Okay. Court. All right. We'll focus on the Supreme Court first then. So oh, sorry. Um, no, 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 no. It's totally fine. Um, uh, so your your book uh, points out a number of things about uh, our Supreme Court, uh, most notably that Article 3 does not specify that it is a quote unquote co-equal branch of government. And uh, it doesn't actually – uh, enshrine the power of the Supreme Court to strike down acts of Congress anywhere. That is sort of an out, outgrowth of the Marbury versus Madison decision in the uh, uh, late 18th century. Um, sorry? 1803. Oh, early 19th. My bad. <clears throat> um, and essentially, you're um, – uh, Arguing that uh, we really need to uh, bring the court to heel to be more in alignment with the actual textual powers granted to it. Uh, so could you could you explain that at least uh, briefly for our listeners and then uh, then we can talk about that a bit more? Sure. And, and Sue, is that your question? Uh, not exactly. <laughs> I am the Republican, so I always come at things a little differently. I, I've I've read your book, Crash, in 2016. I'm a real Republican, lifelong. And um, I thought it was very interesting what you said over the last couple of days about the Supreme Court and just what Mike said, you know, that whole piece about the three not 
equal branches of government. So here's the question for you. Um, what do we do about it right now, uh, given what's going on? And what in the world do you think we should do about Clarence Thomas? Yeah. <laughs> Great questions all. And thank you, uh, both Michael and Sue. Um, the, the, uh, the framers of the Constitution, and you can read the debates, by the way, James Madison's notes on the, on the Constitutional Convention are now in print. Uh, he promised everyone there that he would keep them secret uh, for 50 years until every, or until everyone was dead, and he did. Um, but they were published after his death, and, and he wrote down everything everybody said. And so, you know, we have a pretty good and fairly accurate record. Um, and uh, it was fairly clear from that. I mean, there were, there were a few people who thought the judicial review, which includes the ability to strike down laws passed by Congress or even modify laws passed by Congress, should be one of the powers of the Supreme Court. But that was not the consensus, and that's not what got written into the Constitution. In fact, it's the opposite. Article 3, Section 2 of the Constitution says that the Supreme Court shall operate under regulations defined by Congress and within the parameters of exceptions defined by Congress. And, uh, you know, in the beginning, in the or in the first century or so of this uh, of this nation, the Supreme Court largely did that in 1803 in the Marbury versus Madison case. Uh, Marbury was a guy who had been given a commission um, uh, by the uh, Adams administration. And when Jefferson came into office, he didn't he didn't want Marbury to have that job. And so he instructed uh, James Madison, the secretary of state, to simply not deliver the commission papers, which the law required that they be physically handed to him. So Marbury sued and it went to the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court said under that law, the Judiciary Act of 1797, um, that required actually handing the papers, that that was inconsistent with the Constitution. And therefore, they struck down part of the law. This made President Jefferson absolutely insane. I mean, he went and meets. He, he, he wrote, uh, you know, the, under this decision, the Constitution has become a thing of wax, a mere thing of wax to be molded in the hands of the judiciary, and that the branch that is unelected, you know, the least responsible to the voters. Um, he, he called it uh, tyranny. He said it was setting up essentially a dictatorship. Uh, he was furious, as was much of America. Um, and as a result of that, I mean, the, the Supreme Court, the, the Marshall Court and Marshall, you know, hated Jefferson. They were bitter enemies, which is why John Adams put Marshall on the court as chief justice a week before uh, Jefferson was inaugurated. Adams was the lame duck president at the time. He was uh, Jefferson's second cousin. Um, Marshall was. But uh, even Marshall basically didn't didn't touch that kind of legislature, that kind of uh, ruling uh, again. I mean, you know, there there were two sort of rulings that had to do with the Constitution uh, during Andrew Jackson's presidency, one having to do with the, uh, the the Second National Bank of America and the other having to do with the Trail of Tears. Both were ignored by President Jackson. Uh, yep. He shut down the bank anyway. And he the court got- has made its ruling. Let them enforce it. Exactly. That was he let 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 Justice Marshall enforce it. Yes, that was it. Yes. (laughs) Chief Justice Marshall has made his ruling. Let him enforce it. And the famous comment. And uh, so the next time that they really in a big way, the court tried to tried to uh, rewrite laws uh, was in 1856 in a case called Dred Scott versus Sanford, uh, in which this so the slave, uh, former slave, Dred Scott, um, Sanford, Sanford, his uh, uh, owner, had sent uh, you know slave finders out to, to capture and return him uh, to Missouri. 
And they they did, and he sued and went to the Supreme Court. And Roger Tawney, who was the uh, chief justice at the time in 1856, thought that he would once and for all solve the slavery problem. Tawney himself was a slaveholder. And so Tawney ruled in Dred Scott that um, all black people in the United States were subject to becoming property of white people, that they had no rights basically under the Constitution. Oh, my God. That, that any white man was bound to respect. Exactly. And 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 in yep. fact, I mean, under under his ruling, uh, free blacks in the north, any old white person could just walk up and say, you're mine now. I mean, yep. it was just nuts. He said that, you know, nature yeah. itself, uh, you know, defied the idea of black people having any any kind of agency. Didn't and matter where you were born, where you lived or what citizenship you might have held. Any of that. None of it mattered. Exactly yeah. right. Super so, awesome. Really so, love that. Uh, really. Yes. <laughs> 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 Certainly makes a point that like maybe the Supreme Court being able to settle these questions with absolute authority is problematic. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. and, and, and the way Abraham Lincoln dealt with this was brilliant. He said, basically, you know, the Supreme Court is the final court of appeals. I mean, that's clear in the Constitution. The buck has to stop somewhere. So poor Mr. Scott has to go back to Missouri and be a slave again. But I'm not going to apply that to anybody else. And, uh, you know, so basically he, you know, he, he kind of split the baby in half, but largely ignored the Supreme Court also. Um, so then, you know, they they kind of kept their fingers out of that business. So there were a couple of cases in the 1880s uh, that involved the Constitution, uh, the, the railroad tax cases that established corporate personhood were the most famous. Um, but it really wasn't until until the uh, uh, the early 20th century. The Lochner um, era? Exactly. Well, not just the, not just the Lochner court, but also, you know, going into the, the into the Franklin Roosevelt administration, the court started aggressively knocking, knocking down the New Deal, striking down unemployment insurance, striking down. They were prepared to strike down Social Security, um, striking down uh, labor rights, striking. You know, they were just going nuts. And that, you know, provoked uh, FDR to, to try to pack the court which then caused the court to change their mind. Uh, Justice Owen Roberts uh, was the first to break and he he went along with not overturning social security. It was called the switch in time that saved nine. And uh, that led FDR to back off. And, and frankly, in answer to Sue's question, you know, what do we do about Thomas? I think it's gonna have to be something like that. I mean, you know, public opinion was strongly against the court uh, during FDR's time until they changed their tune. And it is it has become strongly against the Roberts court now. And uh, I think Congress just needs to amp it up. Sheldon Whitehouse says he's going to start hearings uh, next week uh, into the essentially bribery of Clarence Thomas and perhaps Sam Alito. And they're looking and, and also why is Amy Coney Barrett not recusing herself from cases that her father you know, worked on when, you know, for 30 years, he was the lead lawyer, one of the lead lawyers for Shell Oil. Um, you know, she had always recused herself when she was on the appeals courts on such cases. Um, you know, these people just are not behaving normally, you know, like judges should. They're certainly not behaving within the, the canon of judicial ethics that every other federal judge must comply with. So I think, so, you know, go ahead, Sue. Well, I was just going to say, so you think in some ways it's up to the House to brush them back from the plate and or the president and or the public that, it, yeah. that, that people, people House, have to House push back against them yeah. House, yeah, they, primarily yeah, yeah they well it's going to have to originate all legislation has to originate in the house although you know under the constitution although in fact that's not always the case the senate will take a dead bill that passed the house 
empty it of all content, fill it with something new, change its title, and, and yeah. pass it back to the house. Send it back. Can I yeah. ask a um, just a, 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 a sub question? Yeah. You you're talking about how the how the judges aren't acting like judges. Do you? I don't know. Do you think that has something to do with with them um, starting to name younger and younger judges? I think it has to do with this effort, a very well-funded effort by right-wing billionaires who were concerned about America becoming more progressive and were concerned about their taxes going up. I mean, the average billionaire in America today pays 3.4% income taxes, and they don't want to pay any more than that. And so they they started funding the Federalist Society and several other organizations with the specific goal of packing the Supreme Court. This has been a 25-year project. And, you know, they finally, you know, with, with uh, Trump hit a home run and got three, I, I would say, manifestly unqualified people on the court. I mean, Amy Coney Barrett had only handled a handful of cases in her career, um, at least on the appeals court. Uh, Brett Kavanaugh was a blackout drunk who was deeply in debt. Um, and Neil Gorsuch's mother spent her career trying to destroy the EPA and finally had to resign in disgrace to avoid prosecution. And, uh, and he himself took a stolen seat, Merrick Garland's seat. So, you know, there's the, there's a lot of questions around the legitimacy of the court. And so that's why I'd say in answer to both your questions, I think that public opinion is probably the main thing that the, the court is going to have to bend to. I doubt that the House will go along with legislation to impose a code of ethics on the court. But it's possible. I mean, just like the January 6th commission in the House basically shamed Merrick Garland into appointing Jack Smith and doing something about Donald Trump's crimes. Um, I think that it's going to take, uh, you know, uh, activity by Congress, not necessarily an act of Congress, to shame the court into adopting some sort of ethical rules and perhaps into convincing Clarence Thomas and maybe even Sam Alito that it's time to retire. They're both old guys anyway. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> so uh, the history of things like, you know, Dred Scott and Plessy versus Ferguson and such other wonderful gifts to uh, human freedom and society um, certainly make a strong case that, you know, the Supreme Court maybe shouldn't have the kind of power to just sort of say, now this rule doesn't, this law doesn't apply or whatever. But at the same time, um, uh, if uh, Congress were to, uh, you know, things were to change and we get a new Congress and it passes a law saying, you know, black people don't get the right to speak freely in public. Just they just don't, um, which is obviously in violation of the First Amendment. Um, you know, sh uh, shouldn't is isn't it useful to have a, a a Supreme Court that can say, yeah, no, that doesn't that's no good. Well, in theory, and 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 typically, uh, particularly Democrats and liberals point to. Uh, you know, Brown versus Board and Roe v. Wade as examples of where the court has done the right thing and and why it's so important to have judicial review. Well, Miranda um, v. Arizona. Yeah. I mean, there's a, there's a bunch of them. But I think that, you know, when Jefferson was asked about this, uh, George Mason sent him a note uh, saying if, you know, this was after the after the uh, 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 Marbury decision and sent him a note saying if the Supreme Court is not the final arbiter of what is constitutional and what is not, then who is? And Jefferson wrote back and, he, and uh, a very short letter. Um, and he said, um, you know, my, my understanding of the constitution is different from yours, quack, quack, quack. And then he said, um, you know, the, the arbiter should be the people themselves. 
He said, the people, he said, either oh, you believe or you don't. And this is why Larry Kramer. I'm sorry, deep, either what the people. Either you believe in democracy or you don't. Oh, and, mm-hmm. and, and if you believe in democracy, and it's the point I make in the book, uh, The Hidden History of American Democracy, is that, you know, this is actually in our genes. Every, every animal species governs themselves small d democratically. Um, you know, flocks of birds, schools of fish, you name it, bugs, you know, a ball of gnats. They're, they're, with every wing beat, uh, they're, they're voting which direction to go. And, and when 51% of them vote to move two degrees to the right, the whole flock or school or whatever moves two degrees to the right. Um, so if you believe in democracy, then um, ultimately the people, if the power is with the people, will generally make the right decision. And I, I would argue, in fact, I had this conversation a number of times with Phyllis Schlafly back in the day, that in 1973, uh, there were already five or six states that had decriminalized abortion. California was the most famous. Ronald Reagan signed the most liberal abortion law in the United States. It was more liberal. New York, than, too. Exactly. More liberal than the Roe v. Wade standard. And so had the Supreme Court not done Roe v. Wade, um, probably within a decade, most all of America would have legalized abortion. And those places that hadn't would have been little backwaters that, that uh, you know, had where people had figured out a way around, you know, whatever they, was going on. And I think we'll probably go through that cycle again. But because the Supreme Court inserted themselves into this process before it was ripe, um, it became, you know, a 30-year controversy. It became a, a, a call to action. It, it, it produced the anti-abortion movement. And, uh, you know, but had they been, had the anti-abortion folks been soundly beaten at the polls in state after state, uh, you know, they, they would have just licked their wounds and gone away and, and tried to do what they could to convince people not to have abortions or maybe signed on for things like, let's have better birth control and things like that. Um, so, you know, I, I would argue and 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 that same argument has been made about Brown versus Board and about Miranda and about a number of other decisions that that, you know, the country was on the cusp of this anyway. And the Supreme Court just got out ahead of it. So, you know, I'm not fully taking Jefferson's position and I'm not fully arguing that we should end judicial review altogether. But I do, you know, up until, you know, really the last 30 or 40 years. Most of what the court did was be in the court of final appeals. You know, somebody sues somebody and they win and then the loser appeals it to, a, you know, the district court and then the district court appeals and it gets appealed to the circuit court. And then it can, finally it's got you know, Buck's got to stop somewhere. That's mostly what the Supreme Court historically has done and why the and, and exactly what the Constitution describes them as doing. So, you know, if they're going to engage in judicial review, it should be few and far between because these are. These are major consequential decisions that alter the course of American society and usurp the democratic, small d democratic power of Congress, of, of the House, the Senate, and, and the and the presidency, which are all elected by the people, and the Supreme Court is not. So those are my thoughts on that. I wrote a, a separate book, by the way, about this topic. It's called The Hidden History of the Supreme Court and the Betrayal of America, if you want to do a deep dive into this stuff. I'll have to get it. I'll definitely get it. So um 303 creative would just fall off the map then because that that case that there wasn't even a real person i mean it was all it was all uh you know hypothetical so they yeah, it, really never should have been before the, it never should have been before the court in the first place there was no torture yeah. 
there was no no actual injury. Um, and yeah. that's an example of how, and that's another example that adds to the perception of, and, and I think reality of the illegitimacy of this court is that, you know, they are hell bent for leather on basically legislating on doing what Congress is supposed to do um, instead of, uh, you know, doing what they're supposed to do, which is decide, you know, being the final court of appeals. Well, certainly. Do we have time for another one, Mike? Well, I'm just <laughs> your I'm question just, about tribes. <laughs> well, I'm I'm thinking about uh, <clears throat> certainly the uh, it's it's a fair point that uh, the Supreme Court either is uh, uh, often isn't sort of uh, striking uh, down unjust laws and ways that aren't you know that don't already have a broad base of support in our society. Um, but at the same time, uh, you know, the, 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 uh, Jim Crow laws, you know, segregation and whatnot throughout the country, um, not both at the state and at the federal level were just accepted. And, uh, that was you know, Plessy versus Ferguson in 1898. Right. Um, Published those laws. That was the Supreme Court. Right. Ex exactly. And then it was the Supreme Court that said, no, on second thought, this is bad. And right. I'm, I'm also reminded of the uh, uh, here in Massachusetts, the Supreme, the state Supreme Judicial Court um, uh, issued a, a landmark ruling that, that said, according to the state constitution here of Massachusetts, uh, doesn't say anywhere that uh, someone people getting married have to be male and female. Like you can have same sex marriages. Just there's there's there that's totally consistent with our constitution and any laws saying otherwise are wrong and struck them down. And you know we were the first state to have legal gay marriage because of that. You know and that that's not the most important thing overall, especially in the the subject of, you know, equal rights for the LGBTQIA plus community. But it's an example of how uh, a judiciary can uh, just sort of cut through a whole layer of uh, political nonsense, um, you know, because our then governor Mitt Romney wasn't going to be, uh, you know, signing any laws legalizing gay marriage anytime but it's soon. It's also an example <laughs> of judicial review done right. Um, because your constitution. Why, thank you. We are a cool state. <laughs> your constitution actually said what it said, and all the court did was yeah. acknowledge that. I mean, yeah. in in this recent EPA case, uh, or the you know the Waters of America case. Oh yeah, um, yeah, yeah. That was off. The Supreme Court took the word uh, adjacent and turned it into the word adjoining. I mean, they literally rewrote the law and then made a decision on their rewrite of the law, but the Congress never rewrote the law. Um, you know, and they did something very similar, uh, you know, uh, well, they've done that two or three times now and uh, recently. Um, Heller did that as well. Um, well and and the, the whole major questions, Doctor, it is, it, yeah, I, have, no I have ranted many times about how people who claim to be textualists and originalists just wholesale invent and insert uh, what they wanted to say. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's a scam. And, you know, so what the court, what the Massachusetts Supreme Court did is they said, here, here's what the Constitution says. Any idiot can read it. We're just going to go with this. 
which is a whole different thing from saying, well, you know, uh, you know, Scalia saying, well, you know, I found this tract written by a Pennsylvania anti-federalist opposed to the Constitution in uh, uh, 1789 that said that uh, we should have guns to protect our homes. And therefore, that's what the founders meant when not a single founder had ever said that those those words do not exist anywhere in the debates on the constitution the second amendment was not about that at all it was about getting rid of a standing army and and only secondarily incidentally to preserving the slave patrols in the southern states and uh, but it was all about a huge debate about having a standing army and uh, you mm-hmm. know Scalia just invented this thing in Heller, and he could only find one guy from the 70s. It's just like, you know, in Dobbs. I mean, you know, uh, Alito had to go find one guy from like the late 1600s, early 1700s who burned women at the stake. I mean, this was a guy who sentenced women to be burned as witches, to quote him about Mm -hmm. abortion. Yeah, it's like, wait a minute, that's not reading the Constitution and saying, well, this is what the Constitution says. No, that's a whole different thing. So uh, I guess in a nutshell, then, would it be fair to say that your position is like, yeah, absolutely, judicial review can be a great thing that absolutely, you know, uphold right, hold rights and whatnot done correctly. Like, for example, what the courts did in Massachusetts. It's wonderful. But um, because the the courts tend to be these unelected lifetime appointments, um, it's too it's too easily open to abuse. And you'd rather sort of rely on. Just the just, you know, stronger democratic traditions and principles and the power of the ballots and people saying, no, that's terrible. We don't we don't want that uh, to sort of preserve the rights of the minority. Article three, section two, that defines the Supreme Court says that that, uh, you know, they shall try cases as to law and to fact. Now, the as to law part is what has been interpreted to justify and was interpreted by John Marshall to justify judicial review. Hmm. And I would say, yeah, the the Supreme Court, excuse me, the Constitution is the supreme law of the land. So if a court is going to make decisions based on law, that is one of the laws to which they can look. But they can't invent doctrines. They can't imagine what the founders might have thought. They can't find some guy from the 16th century and say, well, because he said this, we're going to No, I mean, you know, like I said, and and like you guys just pointed out, the the Massachusetts case is a perfect example of how how deciding cases based on law when that law is the Constitution makes perfect sense. And and, you know, arguably in the Marbury case, Marshall was doing that. You know, he was he was arguing that the Judiciary Act requiring that transfer of the piece of paper was, you know, really inconsistent with the with the constitutional duties of of the secretary of state and of the president and and and, and impractical, um, arguably. But, you know, that's a whole stretch from, you know, Plessy versus Ferguson or or sure. or or Dobbs or, or Heller. Heller, yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I guess a- I I guess what I'm what I'm asking, and I know, I know you have to go in a moment. So, uh, but just in the end, do you think um, the trade off of you can get good stuff like you know like like the uh, Brown v. Board and and the Miranda rights decision and so forth um, uh, is uh, the tr- is the advantage of getting stuff like that sometimes not worth the problems that come from 
uh, a court that is captured by uh, uh, corrupt and dishonest bad actors like Clarence Thomas, Sam Alito, Antonin well, Scalia, let's, and so let's, forth. Let's be clear. I mean, you know, the, there were a lot of people who thought that the Warren court were corrupt bad actors too. I mean, yeah, uh, but yeah, they weren't. Mostly, <laughs> but. But that was the argument that they made, the, the whole impeachable Warren thing in the 1950s. I remember those signs growing up. They were all over Michigan hmm. and, you know, they were paid for by Fred Koch. Um, but, uh, yeah, I, I, I would rather see a court. I would rather see legislation defining the rules of America left to Congress and the president so that if Congress passes a law that says, you know, something just outrageous, the people can correct that at the ballot box. I'd rather see that then have the Supreme Court sticking its nose into all these things. Yeah, all right. Absolutely. Well, uh, and yeah, I have to think about that some more. You Can I ask one You make a questions? persuasive case. Yeah, please, Sue. Uh, we've only got a little bit left, but yeah. Uh, Tom Hartman, do you think that the Supreme Court started doing some of this stuff because Congress wasn't doing its job and that a lot of stuff was ending up with them that should have been solved by immigration you know, solved by Congress? Is it that, you know, there was a, there was a vac vacant a vacuum? You could make that argument, but that's really an argument against the Supreme Court doing it because that argument uh, suggests that the court is doing legislation, which is very much not their job, according mm. to the Constitution. Um, you know, so, yeah. Uh, Thank you. You're welcome. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, I, I'd, I'd love to keep talking, but uh, your the the window we were promised has uh, has come to an end. So, Tom Hartman, your book is coming out uh, July eighteenth. It's the hidden history of American democracy, and people can listen to you all over the country, uh, including on uh, WHMP here in the Pioneer Valley. Thank you so much for joining us here on Civil Politics on Valley Free Radio. It's been great. You guys have a great show. I'm just so impressed. With the three of you. Oh, thank you. <laughs> Thank you very much. Thank you. The other two really class it up, I got to say. <laughs> <laughs> we have to, Mike. We have to. <laughs> All right. Well, that's great. Thank you. Thanks for joining us, Tom Hartman. Uh, we're going to take a short break, play some PSAs, promos, and station IDs here. Keep the FCC happy. But we'll be back with more civil politics here on Valley Free Radio in just a couple of minutes. Please don't go away. We will be right back. Table of Contents is a weekly music program that assembles an assortment of songs and sounds of many genres, and which may entail literally taking a random collection of musical sources off the shelf and giving them a turn on the table or spin in a CD or tape player, each week presenting shows which can at times be organized orderly and at other times perhaps be not as much so, yet never dull. Tune in Friday nights, 10 p.m. till midnight on WXOJ LP, Northampton 103.3 FM. There are everyday actions to help prevent the spread of respiratory diseases. Wash your hands. Avoid close contact with people who are sick. Avoid touching your eyes, nose, and mouth. Stay home when you are sick. Cover your cough or sneeze. Clean and disinfect frequently touched objects with household cleaning spray. For more information, visit cdc.gov COVID-19. This message brought to you by the National Association of Broadcasters and this station. Hey, this is Wendy, host of Valley Free Radio's Subculture Music Program, featuring new wave, post-punk, indie, and electronic music from the 70s to today. Join me every Friday night from 8 to 10 p.m. here on WXLJ, or stream it live from your favorite listening device at valleyfreeradio.org. 
Forbes Library staff would like to remind you of the incredible resource that you have in your local public library. We have tens of thousands of books for you to check out, music CDs, movies, newspapers from around the region, the state, and the country. We have a wide variety of magazines and free computer and internet access every day. We also have our incredible reference services there to help you answer particularly vexing problems. All of this is free, locally available at 20 West Street in Northampton. So come by and check us out in person or at www.forbeslibrary.org or call 587-1011 for more information. And we're back with Civil Politics here on Valley Free Radio, WXOJLP 103.3 FM out of Northampton, Massachusetts. I'm still Michael Dow, still doing the show with Sue and Genre. Sadly, no longer Tom Hartman. He's uh, flitted off to other areas of syndication and uh, uh, truth-telling goodness around the world. Uh, so we're going to uh, switch gears here and pivot to talking about uh, a subject that is near and dear to uh, genres and my uh, movie and TV nerd geek loving heart hearts. Uh, the strike, which uh, as we're recording, I think is is about to kick off. Um, One of them. Uh, yeah. Well, or, the, I know the strike actually, that's about to kick off of SAG-AFTRA. Yes, Exactly. Which is the Screen Actors Guild. Screen, Screen Actors, Actors Guild. Guild, which used to be a separate thing from the, uh, uh, what is it, the Affiliate Association of uh, uh, something of, of television and radio. I can't remember what AFTRA stands for, but it's for <laughs> television and radio people. I don't remember what the F stands for. The Screen for. Actors Guild, American Federation of Television and Radio, radio Artists. Radio Artists, yeah. So basically, those two actors unions merged about 10 years ago, and now they are uh, one unified bargaining group for actors, and uh, they're going on strike because the TV producers have basically told them uh, to stick it. Jama, uh, why don't you give us a, a rundown on the, the what the immediate background of this? So, uh, yeah, I just wanted to, like like Mike said, some background. So back in May, um, the Writers uh, Guild, so the WGA, uh, they were negotiating their new contract, and we we've we've talked about this on the show before. Uh, one of the major issues was the reduction of. Uh, writers' rooms and the re, uh, the reduction of um, pay. Uh, writers are are now making less than they were uh, like a few like a few years ago because of the rise of streaming, and there's also a concern of AI. So they decided to go on strike because the the studio uh, the studios uh, specifically the uh, AMPTP the Alliance of Motion Picture and Television Producers. Uh, which is said, <laughs> which isn't a union it's basically just a cabal of major studios it's a trade association um it's basically the the court the, the it's the, a cartel kids it's a cartel basically all the all the studios are putting all the power to negotiate with this trade organization so they take care of it and mm -hmm. so the studios can be like it's them we're not doing anything blah, 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 you know so yeah. They uh, were negotiating. They gave up really, really bad deals to the WGA, uh, and they so WGA has been on strike since the end of May. Uh, it has lasted a very, very long time. Lots of uh, uh, 
productions have been shut down. Even movies that are in production, the actors on set can't improvise. They have to follow whatever the script is to the to the letter. So we've been on we've been seeing them on strike for the past, you know, few months, couple months. And then the um, SAG-AFTRA AFTRA, uh, was negotiating. They, their, their contract end, was supposed to end on, on July 1st. They gave the studios uh, 12 extra days so they could try to work something out. Um, it looks like the studios asked for those 12 extra days just so they could get as much summer movie pr- um, production and uh, promotion in before saying screw you. And yeah, they they didn't reach a deal. So um, on the 13th, as of actually uh, July 14th at 12.01, the Screen Actors Guild, so all actors are now on strike, which means all the actors and all the writers are refusing to work, which means... Hollywood is shut down. That's that's what it means. <laughs> Except for well, like some post-production stuff. Um, there's no like uh movies are gonna get, get shut down. And shows, the only yeah. things that they can do, like act actors can do is like some commercials um and and stuff that is contracted uh for specific things. The major things that the actors can't do, and this is really important because actors are the faces of the industry. They can't do panels. They can't do any promotions. So there's no, and they just announced the um, Emmys. So the Emmys, if if this lasts long enough, if the if the um, industry doesn't come to the table and negotiate with them, the Emmys are just going to be a like a ton of empty seats. Yeah, this is all crazy. And the last thing I want to say is just um, I watched uh, Fran Drescher is actually the president of SAG um, Afra, Aftra. Um, she had this great speech and I'll link it in the in the show notes. Uh, just just talking about how they really this is this is a moment for workers and a moment for anybody really who uh, is getting screwed over by their by their employer. Um but that one of the the major things that they that they said was the <laughs> the AMTBT or whatever the the studios were saying the producers cartel <laughs> yeah the producer cartel one of the things they they uh, suggested was or one of the things they wanted was a background actor so in a scene there's like people like moving around in the background it's usually like a day's work or something like that. If you're a background actor, you get paid for the day, but the studio can scan your face and just use it for as long as they with want. AI. Yeah. With, yep, a, with AI. AI and and just use it and reproduce it and you don't get paid anything. This is something that they proposed that they called groundbreaking. Nothing makes sense. Up is down. I'm glad that it's they're striking. Theft. This is just insane. It's theft. It's yeah. actually theft. It's yep. wage theft. Seriously. It's wage theft. Mm-hmm. Um, 100%. And, and, and theft of, you know, the, the property rights, uh, to use, you know, that kind of terminology. But, you know, like we all have a property right to our appearances, to our likenesses. Likeness. Yeah. That's likeness. one of the things that's um, – uh, one of the recent court cases that uh, the NCAA has been bemoaning is like they used to just sell the rights to uh, uh, 
you know, college athletes to video games. It's like NCAA basketball video game on, you know, PlayStation or whatever. Yeah. And it's like they're, they weren't paying the athletes any money for that. And, you know, even accepting their- but they were selling it. Right, right. Mm-hmm. Even accepting the nonsense argument that, oh, the kids are getting reimbursed by, uh, you know, they're just amateur student athletes and, you know, they're they're getting a college education and it would sully and corrupt the beauty of everything if they actually got paid for the value, you know, for the huge entertainment value of their labor in being athletes like this and making us billions of dollars every year. Um you know, the, the student athletes are like, well, wait a minute. Like, why do you get to use my face to sell your crap? Yeah. Uh, and uh, the courts ruled on their in their favor. And now the studios are saying like, yeah, but what if we ignored that and did it anyway? <laughs> Somebody has to create the system to monetize this so that they can so that the writers and actors can actually know how much they're images being used and streaming and all that. I've heard that part of it's that they've created this black box. So you can't tell, you know, the yes. companies know, but they don't, they, there's no way to look and say, Oh, look, they ran the reruns of Cosby 40 times. You know, they just, yeah. I shouldn't have picked that show, but <laughs> they, yeah, that, that the architecture to do that, just like ASCAP and all that did it for, mm-hmm. you know, music yeah. on the radio. That, that they've got to agree to some sort of a system to monetize it. And that is that's part a big of, deal. Yeah, that is part of yeah. the, the negotiations that they're trying to do. The actors and the writers are both saying, uh, you are not like this new form of media, this this new way of, of doing things. You are not paying as much as you should. Like some people are getting checks for pennies from Netflix for being on incredibly popular shows and they're saying that we should get uh residuals just like you know they get paid anytime like one of their shows is rerun like you said on tv on over the air they say if it we should get a cut of the profits from these streaming yep. services the more show streams the more you have to pay us exactly is how and it should we, be. and yeah. we have this formula to do this so the and the um and the studios are saying no partially because they don't want to release their their numbers uh because yeah. they can make them up as much as they want Sue, what were you saying from from what i understand the producers actually the people who are producers in the producers union they actually are getting a cut so clearly they've been able to do it for the producer Oh, that's why they settled. That's why that union settled the producers and directors. Yeah, the directors, the directors guild. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. The directors guild settled for. I don't think that I don't I don't think that they're getting a cut of the uh, like, I don't think their pay is reflected in the actual numbers um, of the the streaming. Uh, My friend, the producer told me, retired producer told me they did. Maybe the producers, that union. Uh, as far as I, as yeah. far as I know, the directors did not get that because um, if they did, then they would have the the numbers for streaming would have to be would have to be would Somewhere. be able to be released, yes. and they don't want that. So yeah. if one of those got it, then I don't know how. Like maybe there is some way to pay them in some way to like without releasing like numbers. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it's, they do a proxy. Yeah. It's crazy. It's crazy. And 
the last thing I'll say, last thing I, I promise I'll say, and then I'll let you guys talk about this. This is something <laughs> I'm, I'm very passionate about. I love TV. I love movies. I love the production of TV and movies. This is something I, I think about and, and look up and everything all the time. Um, one of so the, what are you going to do? <laughs> one of the well, most horrible well, <laughs> things that the the studios have said recently, and they've been putting out like propaganda and stuff, like showing Tr- Fran Drescher in Italy with like uh, like bags of clothes and stuff, even though that was for her job. She was a brand ambassador. She's contracted to do that. Um, they they said about the WGA, they are. Uh, an anonymous like executive said that they were willing to wait them out until October until they're losing their apartments and houses and it's getting cold and that'll bring them back to the table. Nice. Just horrible. Just, and this is a deadline article, which I also, I'll, I'll link in the, in the show. It's, everything's crazy so please guys um <laughs> i i've talked a lot uh, so I'll, I'll well this reminds me of something i just saw on uh twitter written by uh someone named alex a pagliuca I, I don't follow them but i came across it and it was an interesting observation and they were essentially pointing out um well uh SAG, you know, the the actors and the writers being on strike at the same time is something that hasn't happened in 73 years since um, since uh, or 63 years, I guess, since 1960, I believe, is when the last time this happened. And of course, uh, the person who was president of the Screen Actors Guild at the time was one Ronald Wilson Reagan. Um, Mr. Reagan went on to uh, achieve some level of notoriety by becoming the uh, uh 38th president of the United States, I think. Anyway, um, yeah. So when I was a kid, he He became evil. Well, he was evil long before then, I think. Okay, that's true. But he was president of the Screen Actors Guild then. He he was a collaborator on the Blacklist, too. He was president of the union at that time, too. Yeah, Like I said. (laughs) Um, So anyway. (laughs) And governor of California. Right. So um, uh, what uh, Alex Pagliuca pointed out was, the strike was good for Reagan and not just personally as an actor. Being president of SAG uh, was part of what he touted as his qualifications for being governor of California. Essentially, he used it as an example of having been in an executive position. Uh, and being governor of California was the big argument he put forward to becoming president of the United States. He said, I've done this well. Now I should be president of the whole country. Uh, and once he was president, starting in 1981, he then turned around and used his power to, uh, well, to systematically undermine union power, uh, you know, with breaking up uh, the air traffic controller strike, for example, and otherwise just taking steps to um, uh, break unions uh, around the country. He was uh, uh, virulently anti-union as president. And uh Part of the reason why uh, this uh, these actors and writers are striking now is because unions as a whole have been on decline, have really been hollowed out and undermined uh, since Reagan's presidency. Uh, and it's, uh, only in the past two or three years have we started to see a, a resurgence of organizing and enthusiasm for them. And uh, Alex Pagliuca pointed out, uh, or as they wrote, sorry, Alex Pagliuca wrote and said, Reagan used a union as a, to build a ladder 
that uh, lifted him up to the most powerful elected office in the world. And he then went around chopping down all the ladders for all the other working people. Uh, this is American conservatism in a nutshell. It's a project of the wealthy and the powerful and serving their interests. And that's it. And I, you know, as a lefty Democrat, woohoo, I honestly, I believe that too. But yeah, Sue, how did Reagan actually break the power of the air traffic controllers? I remember this a little bit, you know, because I was 11 or 12 when this happened. And I remember just thinking, don't we, is, isn't it dangerous to like, uh, you know, fire air traffic controllers? Aren't planes going to crash? Well, you know, there's certain unions that cannot strike. And the reason they like cannot strike is- firefighters, for example. Yeah. Firefighters, air traffic controllers. Yeah, there's a whole bunch of them. And the reason they can't strike is exactly that, because it's dangerous for them to strike. They can negotiate and they can do all kinds of things. And they can do, um, I forget what it's called, informational strikes. But they can't actually strike. And that's what the air traffic controllers did. They, um, they started to call out and be out. And he said, anybody that's out, because you cannot strike, and it's clearly a strike, he fired him. And I, I actually don't blame him for that. I was actually stuck on planes during that period because I traveled a bit. And um, it was terrible. It was terrible trying to get around because, you know, there was not enough air traffic controllers and people, they were trying to train them, and it was a little hairy. But I, I guess my question is, you know, he went to the mat for the Screen Actors Guild and the writers in the 60s, right? He, he must have orchestrated that strike. And then he turns around and uses it. But for the um, air traffic controllers, he was basically in, enforcing the law. I mean, it's almost like what Biden was doing with, you know, you almost had a, a train strike. And um, yes, I forget who the other groups were. And, you know, Biden went right up to the line trying to force them to, to you know, go to work and all that. I mean, they're, they're doing it within the limits of the law. Do you find that... Um, not okay. I mean, is that what you're saying? I'm speaking as a Republican now. Well, as you can tell. I mean, there is a difference between uh, air traffic controllers because without air traffic control, people will die in plane crashes. So, like, there's obviously a bit of a difference between that and, uh, oh my God, they're not doing more episodes of Last Week Tonight with John Oliver because he and all his writing staff are on strike. And I miss it now, so much, on. I wish it would come back. Genre's on. on with us, so you can't say that to genre. What? Huh? <laughs> because he does care about TV and movies, and it's a whole industry. Anyway, it, never there, mind. There are, I mean, you're right in that it's a whole industry, and, and this will impact a lot of people's lives. Um, I think, if I can... Um, I think the 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 thing that that you were getting at is like they were working within the limits of the law. What I think yeah. is that they they had the 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 ability to make a better deal for workers, and they chose not to. That's that is why I was upset with Biden because he could have said no, your contract includes these days off. This is what we're doing. And he could have sided with the workers. He could have forced. He could have forced it. He could have yeah. forced a better contract, one that would keep us safe because these train crashes have been linked to the workers like not having enough rest and uh, safety violations and everything not being checked. So I think yep. the, the main thing is- To yeah, declare think, hot boxes. Exactly. Yep. I think I think the main thing is that uh, with the air traffic controllers, yeah, 
um, he might have been able to work within the law like that, but he still broke the strike and the workers got screwed over. He like if he wasn't Ronald Reagan, who was just the worst, just absolutely the worst, then he could have broken the strike in a way that would have benefited the workers and that wouldn't have gutted uh or or kneecapped the um the strike like uh like the um the the unions in the country that wouldn't have started the collapse of of unionization in in the country um biden and, and could I wanna, have protected and i want to point out things. and i want to point out joe biden actually has done that i don't know if you guys heard but uh the rail workers uh union uh announced that they've completed a new agreement with the uh the the four major transport rail companies and they now do get a week of sick time good and i they, hadn't heard that yeah 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 in their statement they they gave a they you know they they gave credit to you know bernie sanders because he was constantly harping on about this and, <laughs> you know Bernie, a great communicator of, of, of uh, for workers' rights, for sure. But they also said that there was c- consistent, quiet pressure from the Biden administration to make this happen, that people in the White House kept working on this even after uh, last oh, the events link. of last winter. Yeah. We should and, link to that. I hadn't seen it. So yeah, yeah, very yeah. Cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so, I mean, you know, it's behind the scenes stuff so i don't know exactly who gets what credit and whatever but they did make a point of in the statement giving credit to the biden administration for helping out and uh as uh somebody who was uh when i was i first came across this because Mehdi hassan um on msnbc sort of tweeted about it and said you know credit where it's due joe biden was you know apparently got this done and uh one of uh, some you know crazy socialist on Twitter was like, yeah, no, it's all due to the workers. And it's like, it's not all due to the workers, mm-hmm. but, but yeah, yeah. You know, come to think of it, it is like, if it weren't for these people continuing to like hold together and strike and be willing to put pressure, you know, it wouldn't have happened. So absolutely, uh, you know, credit to the uh, pluck and, uh, and, and uh, agency of the per- people working the railroads, but you know, their their official union statement gives credit to the Biden White House. So, well, so mm. air traffic controllers after the strike, Reagan you know, could have done op- something like that. Didn't when they when they when they opened up all the slots and started training lots of other people to be air traffic controllers. Women and minorities actually did very well. They they increased the numbers substantially. It was an all white boy adventure before that. You know, it's sort of like ATF. It's all, you know, men who know yeah. men who have guns and narcotics. Um, I shouldn't say that. But anyway, the ATF agents are often related to each other. It's, a, it's like a little a little group of people who are ATF folks. So, you know, well, empowering open, women and minorities was famously one of Ronald Reagan's top priorities. So perhaps I'm being oh, yeah. critical. Yeah, he was he was all about that. Well, you know, the first female secretary of state. I'm, and I can't think of her name. We're not going to respect she, Reagan. I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, or, or Ann Garsach, who was the head of EPA. He, he had a lot of women in his cabinet. So, mm. anyway. No, true, true.
True. Um, though not Phyllis Schlafly. Um, yeah. Well, Thank I hear God. them. <laughs> uh, she wouldn't have been terrible if she'd been stuck to arms control. <laughs> uh, yeah, so I hear the music, so I guess we gotta kind of wrap it up, but, uh, uh, for what it's worth, I support uh, the WGA and SAG after striking, and uh, I'm going to cancel my Disney Plus membership, for example. That'll show. Anyway, uh, that's going to do it for Civil Politics tonight here on Valley Free Radio. Coming up next is Subculture, followed by Table of Contents at 10 and OK Asia at midnight. Uh, you can listen to us as a podcast starting tomorrow morning, and uh, we got a repeat broadcast Monday afternoon at 4. Uh, and go out and check out Tom Hartman's new book, The Hidden History of American Democracy. That'll do it for now. Thanks for listening. Good night. Civil Politics is a member of the Planetside Podcast Network. To learn more, go to planetsidepodcasts.com.